Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we're joined by legendary British singer-songwriter Richard Thompson, with a career spanning over 55 years. Thompson delves into his musical journey, reflecting on influences and collaborations with icons like Sandy Denny, Jimi Hendrix and Nick Drake. Recorded at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode offers a glimpse into the life and artist history of a true musical legend. Thank you, everybody, and good evening. Uh, welcome to the studio here and uh, the Bradford Literature Festival. Uh, I am trusting that you're uh, out there, uh, given your applause. I can see nothing uh, but the front <laughs> row. Uh, but uh, it was a very warm welcome indeed, and uh, uh, I'm not so presumptuous to think that was for me. Uh, we're, oh. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I have something in my eye now. <laughs> We're all here, including myself, of course, uh, brought uh, together by uh, the wonderful music uh, and the wonderful life of Richard Thompson. Uh, for those of you who haven't already, and uh, I hope uh, that you haven't necessarily, because they are available for sale afterwards. Uh, this signed. <laughs> or will be soon, anyway. Yes. Uh, oh, signed by him, not me. Uh, 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 B-Swing, uh, Fairport Folk Rock and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975. Those years have great resonance for me because uh, 67 was the year of my birth, and 1975 was the year that I left uh, the UK for the US mm. at the age of eight uh, for uh, the obvious tax shelter reasons. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, what a wonderful memoir, and, uh, you. and your prose in writing it. I'd, I'd like to begin uh, certainly uh, in 1967, uh, when I believe you were, uh, you turned 19. Uh, you can do the math uh, on that. I was 18, actually. Yeah. 18, yeah. sorry, okay. Uh, I, was, I was giving you an extra year there, but okay. Uh, when it comes to influences, we oftentimes think of other musicians uh, later on in, in life, but uh, really some of our earliest formations of, of music come from family. And uh, you, you provide this anecdote of, uh, of going to your grandfather's house and uh, your description of what you find in the attic is, uh, is really fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I was about three. Um, and, and I think my, my parents both wanted to be up in the attic so they wouldn't leave me down in the house, so they dragged me up as well. Because this was a new part of the house I'd, I'd never been to. It was very exciting. And uh, so, so I'm looking at these, you know, dusty old toys and things. Uh, most attics have dusty old toys and things lying around um, for, from previous childhoods, usually. And uh, my dad opens up this, this case, and inside the case there's this box with strings on it. That's how I saw it at the time. And he takes it out, and he plays a few, you know, jazz chords. And I didn't know it was jazz chords at the time either. Um, and... Uh, you know, it sounds just fabulous, you know, and, and uh, he plays it for about two minutes and, and then puts it back, back in the box, and I never saw it again, and I, I think um, he must have sold it. Um, you know, he played a bit of guitar, 
But the nice thing was that uh, he was a, a jazz fan. Um, he went to see Django uh, and the Quintet de Hot Club, um, uh, I, th I think probably in London, actually, in the 30s, it's probably 38, 37, 38. Uh, he saw Louis Armstrong in Glasgow. Um, he was from the Scottish borders. So him and his friends um, had formed a jazz club, and, uh, and they went up en masse uh, to see Louis Armstrong again in the 1930s. Um, so in amongst the less exciting and, and predictable records in the house, so that you, you had um, Duke Ellington and, and, um, and Jango Reinhardt and Les Paul records, in among the, you know, the, the, the Glenn Miller and the, the Pearl Carr and Teddy Johnson and, and, uh, and the show tunes. Everybody had show tunes, so, so Oklahoma, you know, Carousel, all that stuff. Um, so so, so that, was, that was a really interesting thread. Um, that I didn't necessarily pay attention to, but, but it was definitely there in the back of my mind. Uh, and, and I remember um, when, I, when I started playing the guitar, uh, um, slowing down um, Django 33 and a third to, to 17 and whatever it was. It was half of... A, a sixth? Oh. Know, two any, sixths. Any, where's my math people? <laughs> What's half of, of 33 and a third? Thank you. The, by the way, countdown is right after this. <laughs> Um, to, to try and, uh, and learn uh, Django's solos, which were still impossible at half speed. So I, I kind of I, I figured rock and roll was easier to play, uh, and um, and, that, and that was the other thread in the house with my big sister, who was five years older than me, um, who from the age of probably 12, 11, 12, um, was into Bill Haley and uh, Elvis, you know, and whatever came next. Um, and you know she had some some great records. She had all the all the the, the dark rock and roll, as I call it, the dark stuff. Gene Vincent, Jerry Lee Lewis, all the bad boys, you know, um, which I just loved. You know, um, it, it was it was kind of the answer to uh, being a post-war teenager. You know, your parents wanted it safe. They'd been through the hell of war for six years, and they wanted a quiet life. But their kids didn't. That their kids wanted to uh, to re rebel and and have have you know loud, fast, primitive music. So, uh, begone um, saccharine saxophones of, of, the, of the 40s, you know, uh, l let's have it wild and, and um, let's slash some cinema seats while we're at it. So, um, goals. Uh, so, um, th this whole idea, though, about, um, of, about generations, I mean, were, were you sort of just simply rebelling, saying, I'm not going to listen to my, my parents' uh, music? I mean, uh, you know, as you would say, you know, Vera Lynn, uh, relegated to the, the dustbin of history? Or was it that you were, as you said, just a, a teenager with other influences, like, like, like your sister, and I think you also mentioned in the book, her boyfriends? Mm. Well, yeah, um, it was certainly a, a considerable amount of rebellion. My sister and I were, were both, I'd say, rebels. Um, we really fought against um, our parents' um, uh, in a very serious way. Oh, I should also mention French music uh, in, in the house, because yeah, my father uh, didn't get demobilized until 47. He, he was doing something uh, sort of secret in, in, the, in, in uh, Antwerp until 47. Yeah, you've seen The Third Man, the film The Third Man? Okay, he, he, was, he was kind of doing the equivalent in Antwerp uh, as the film uh, portrays in Vienna. Um, so it's kind of rounding up Nazis and contraband and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, to, but but it, it, he, he came back with a pile of French 
um, 78, La Mer by Charles Trenet, you know, um, Jeanne Sablon, Edith Piaf, which um, I love to this day, just this wonderful French music at a time when French music was, was uncorrupted by, by rock and roll. I, I think it really went downhill when uh, you know, Johnny Halliday came along. Uh, it just w wasn't as interesting. Um, uh, but yes, but, but back to my sister's boyfriends. Uh, my, my sister had a succession of, of, of boyfriends who um, would come over the house to, 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 to collect her um, on a date, and she will be invariably late. She's still late. She could be an hour, two hours late for anything. It's just her, she's got her own rhythm. But she's very good at keeping restaurants open past their closing time. She's an <laughs> expert at that. Um, so, um, you know, the, um, the boyfriends that come round and there's, there's a guitar sitting there so that they pick up the guitar and, and they teach me how to play like the, 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 the Buddy Holly songs of the day, uh, how to play, you know, shadow stuff. Um, so that was great. Um, that was a real uh, introduction to the guitar for me and uh, stood me in good stead. So you were absorbing music from so many different genres uh, and so many uh, different people. By the way, who has uh, an older sibling who was a major music influence on your taste? All right. I'm only saying that because my younger sister is in That's the audience. 95% of the audience. <laughs> and although I can't see if she even raises her hand, uh, she'd better. Uh, um, you also had schoolmates. Uh, mm. who were uh, not only influential, but some of them turned out to be uh, rather famous in, uh, in their own regard. They did. Well, um, you know, I was in a class at my school, William Ellis School in North London, um, and one of my classmates was, was Hugh Cornwell, who, who, who uh, formed a band called The Stranglers, um, who, who uh, did, did quite well. They, they had lots of hits uh, in <laughs> the um, uh, 70s and 80s. Um, and Hugh and I are still friends. So we didn't see each other for 40 years. And then we were both playing a festival in Spain. And it's like, oh, how, how are you? Oh, good. Now, um, can, can I remind you of what you were saying 40 years ago? And let's just get back to that. You know, it's, it's like picking up the conversation that, that we finished, um, you know, when we left school. But, you know, when we left school, I, I really didn't see him. Um, but at school, uh, we, we formed a band. Um, I suppose I taught Hugh to play the bass. Um, I play guitar, a, a kid called Nick, Nick Jones was our drummer, the son of Max Jones uh, from the Melody Maker, the, the jazz critic of the Melody Maker. And uh, Nick would, would get all the, the, the demo 45s that got sent to Melody Maker, um, and we'd sift through those for, for good songs. So, so we had an unusual repertoire for, for a, a school band of 15-year-old uh, kids. Um, so that was fun, yeah. Um, and I suppose uh, one of the nice things about being in a group is that you learn from each other and you influence each other. Um, it's why the Beatles were, were so great. They, 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 they played enough with each other on the road, you know, um, that they got kind of bedded in, which I think it, it doesn't happen as much these days in popular music. But uh, you can tell the bands that just played, played and played and played and played with each other and, and they just knew the quirks um, of each other. And you learn to accommodate the, the fact that, you know, the, 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 the rhythm guitar player is slightly behind the beat and, and, and the drummer's, you know, snare is slightly in front of the beat. You know, you, you, you just develop this thing where you know what each other are doing and, and it all fits together like, like a jigsaw and uh, sounds great. A lot, a lot of those Liverpool bands had that thing where, where, where they could do that. Um, and a lot of the London bands, I mean, um, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a good time. And it was a great time for live music because there were so many places to play. 
uh, and you had that opportunity uh, uh, to play live a lot, you know, you, you know seven, seven nights a week if you wanted to. So here's the Beatles that come along when you are a teenager and so really kind of that perfect storm. Uh, you had guitar tutors like Pete introducing you to people like Ida Presti and, uh, and even Andre Segovia, I mean, oh. the great virtuoso. So you're also being exposed to uh, technical mastery uh, of guitar, not just uh, screaming out three chord progressions and, uh, and singing yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at least four chords, I think. Uh, <laughs> okay, overachiever, the, the but okay. The fourth one has come in very handy over the years. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you know, being in London um, was handy uh, because you really were at that point, at, at the crossroads of uh, uh, teenage music culture and fashion. You know, um, you know, Gene Shrimp and David Bailey, uh, the Avengers TV series, you know, uh, Carnaby Street, uh, King's Road. Or, or, or this is the, the world focus of fashion and, and the world focus of, of music, um, thanks, thanks to people uh, like the Beatles. So um, it, it was great to be there, even if we were a generation later. We weren't the Rolling Stones of Beatles' generation, but we were like five years behind them. But still, there was that cachet uh, about music from London. Uh, and um, still, it, when Fairport went to America uh, as late as 1970, um, it was still a bit special to be from England. Uh, that, that, was, that was an interesting thing. Um, I forgot what the question was. Well, we, we, uh, no, I, I mean, I think you answered it uh, perfectly as far as um, uh, technique of uh, classical you, yeah. guitar and all. Well, well yeah, yeah, and, and um, being in London, you could, uh, you, you could go and see classical music. You could go and see, yeah, you, you could go and see Andre Segovia. Uh, you could go and see um, Joe Harriet's Indo Jazz Fusions, an ex experimental uh, uh, jazz meet, East Meets West band. That was wonderful. Uh, you can see, you could see um, pretty much anybody in a folk club. You could see Martin Carthy, you could see the Watersons. Um, uh, it, it, it was a, an amazing um, smorgasbord of, of uh, musical styles. Uh, and I think. Um, well, when you're young, uh, you're influenced by everything, or, or you, you can pick and choose what you want to be influenced by, and, and that was wonderful. So 1967 comes around, you're 18. Mm -hmm. uh, three consequential things happen that year. Uh, Sergeant Pepper comes out. Mm -hmm. um, you form the Fairport Convention. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Um, I think that was one of those pivotal years. You know, Jimi Hendrix... Uh, I think he moved to London in 66, but he, he was starting to have an influence in 67. Uh, yeah, Fairport um, only became Fairport in May of 67, but by September 67, we're, we're already signed to a record contract uh, and we're playing um, opening spots for Pink Floyd and the crazy world of Arthur Brown, etc., etc. So, so it, was, it was a very quick, quick evolution in, in many ways. Uh, and I think Fairport's virtue was just the fact that we tried to be different. You know, we, we tried to not be a blues band. We, we, we tried to not be a, a soul band, which were the main flavors uh, of the time. Um, and I think that gave us a, a certain reputation. Um, and uh, I think we, we stayed that way. I mean, we, we, we stayed as a, a band that had an unusual approach and an unusual repertoire. Now, people are, of course, always looking to pigeonhole bands, uh, maybe because that's the section in the record store that you can easily find them. Uh, Fairport was at one point even called the British Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. 
I'm not sure I really hear that. Uh, yeah, right? No, not okay. remotely, no. Uh, much better than being called the British Jefferson Starship. Um, that's, <laughs> uh, that, that would be w uh, really out of bounds. Or, or, the, or, the, or the British Osmonds, that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, the thought of you landing at Heathrow and all of these screaming girls coming and trying to tear off your clothes, um, I, okay. I, I could handle it, that'd be okay. <laughs> Well, I don't think you're the long-haired lover from Liverpool either, so <laughs> I remember seeing those scenes of carnage uh, on, on TV when I was a kid. But this was a time when you had people like Bob Dylan, you had people like Joni Mitchell. Uh, oftentimes, Fairport is uh, uh, categorized, and I'm saying this again from record stores and where to find you, mm -hmm. uh, would usually be put into folk or folk rock. What was the cross-pollination of, of this time? I mean, with, that, with people like Dylan and, and uh, Mitchell producing some incredible music. Yeah. Um, I think in Fairport, we were always interested in lyrics. Um, and fr from the, the, our formation, uh, we loved to play uh, uh, Dylan songs um, and Johnny Mitchell songs. Uh, we got hold of, of Dylan's demos, um, the basement tapes, quite early on. Uh, we, we just found 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 Dylan's publisher I said, have you got any unreleased uh, uh, Bob Dylan songs? I said, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> come over to the office. And they, they gave us a stack of, of acetate, acetate recordings, which became the, the basement tapes. Same with Joni Mitchell. Um, they, they gave us all, all the stuff before she'd even made a record. They gave us all, all her demos. So that was nice. Um, and we should give probably the most credit to Bob Dylan as the person who uh, made popular music intelligent. Uh, intelligent lyrics in popular music. Um, th through his own music, th through versions of his songs by the Birds, through um, his influence on the Beatles, especially on John Lennon. Um, uh, it, it made it okay to sing political songs, to sing songs that weren't, weren't just about, you know, you know teenage love, they're, they're about deeper things, um, you know, uh, social things, um, uh, other kinds of emotion that, that, that um, hadn't been expressed in popular music for, for a long time. So uh, all, all credits to Bob for that. And, and then on the back of Dylan, you, you had, uh, you know, Eve of Destruction and all, all, all these, these kind of, um, you know, psychedelic, um, word-heavy songs uh, that, that, that came along, some of which were good, some of which were, were not so good. Um, but but that, that was a, r a real turning point in popular music. I, and I think for Fairport, we're, we're very keen on the lyrical side of that. Uh, we love the idea of... Uh, of, of intelligent lyrics um, and, and of trying at that point then to start writing our, our own songs uh, with intelligent lyrics. Did you find that you were in competition or were you, in, were you complimenting some of these other musicians that were out there at this time? If you heard, if you heard like say a Dylan track said, oh, you know what, I gotta, I gotta beat that. You, you're, you know the very famous thing about how Dylan and John Lennon went back and forth with Norwegian Wood and fourth time around, or the Beatles with, um, with the Beach Boys trying mm -hmm. to one-up each other. Yeah. Did you ever feel that with any musician? I, I don't think we did. Um, we, we didn't feel, uh, certainly didn't feel that kind of uh, competition with American bands, so who, who were the, the ones who were really, um, you know, singing the entire lyrics. But, but, but bands like the Birds, um, uh, maybe Love with Arthur Lee, uh, well, we, we didn't really feel that, uh, that close a connection because they, they were geographically very distant. And uh, in, in the UK, we, we didn't really feel there was anybody in our particular field that we were plowing. Um, 
the, the the UK, you know, the underground London scene, whatever you want to call it, the sort of psychedelic scene, where it was very, very friendly uh, and very mutually supportive. Um, but 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 I, I think we saw everybody as quite distinct. You know, the crazy world of Arthur Brown was was, was one unique thing, and, and Pink Floyd were another unique thing. Um, Blossom Ties were another unique thing. Uh, the social deviants were another unique thing. Um, but they were, they were just kind of kind of friends and, and people you, you know you'd meet on the on the M1 you know on the motorway or, or, or in the, in Bob's Caf on the, on the A6 you know um, but it wasn't really uh, no not competitive no. Um, I mentioned that uh, Sgt Pepper came out in 1967 when Fairport formed. Revolver, of course, uh, I know you you talk about it, and I mean these albums are really known for their studio engineering. And I was I was struck by how in um, on Book Song. Uh, it seemed as though you uh, you were borrowing some of uh, the Beatles' uh, uh, sleight of hand and their mastery in the studio. Yeah. Um, well, on that album, on the what we did in our holidays album, um, I'm almost going back to Les Paul actually, which you know, which I heard when I was a very very small child um, from my dad's record collection. So, so using you know half speed, double speed guitar, um, running, running the tape backwards, all that kind of stuff, um, really came from Les. As much as from the Beatles, but but it was that time, and um, we were very happy to finally, I think, get, get to to eight tracks, you know, uh, um, on, on the recording machine, um, up from four. I think our first album was four tracks, second album might have been eight tracks. So you got wow, you know, if we put put the drums on two tracks, blah 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 blah. Ooh, we've got two tracks left. Let's put a backward guitar on there. Let, let's add a cello over here. Um, it was exciting stuff. Um, uh, the nice thing about those days was, um, you know, the more tracks you got, the, the, the more you could say, well, we'll mix it later. Um, when you only had four tracks, you, you had to say, okay, uh, we, have to, we have to pre-mix um, the rhythm guitar and the hi-hat. And we have to pre-mix, uh, you know, the, the bass and the bass drum. So, so, so you, had, you had to make earlier decisions. Um, that made the mixes quirkier, but somehow more distinctive. Uh, um, it was a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, and every time you did a mix, it was live. And now you can automate the mixes and, and, and just get them absolutely perfect. Um, but in the old days of live mixing, uh, you'd say, okay, um, could, you, uh, can you, can you ride up the, the guitar solo and, and can, you, can you just uh, you know, ride down the bass a little bit on, on that passage? So, so it was like this, all these hands coming onto the mixing desk, they're doing that little bit. And at the end of the mix, you go, how was that for you? Oh, it's great. Okay, fantastic. Um, but every mix was different. So it was, uh, it was kind of live and lots of fun in many ways. Now, you also bring in a female voice with uh, Sandy Denny. Hmm. Uh, what was the impetus for that? I mean, it certainly changed the sound of Fairport. Well, we'd always had a female vocalist. Uh, before Sandy, we had, we had Judy Diebel. And it was one of the things that made us distinctive as a band. Uh, and when Judy left, we thought, well, perhaps we should um, keep that going, you know, get, keep that distinction. Uh, and um, uh, the, the fact that Sandy, you know, auditioned for us and, and just blew us away um, really helped us to, to, to continue that. Um, she was a pretty extraordinary um, presence, um, an amazing singer, and uh, lots of fun as a human being. Um, and, and I think... Uh, even today, I, I listen to back, back to old Fairport records, and, and I, I think you know that's that, that's re really quite something. Um, what, what Sandy was doing, uh, yeah, a, a, a great legacy. I mean, I was listening to Legion Life, uh, which was, I believe, the fourth 
a Fairport album, mm. uh, A Sailor's Life. Uh, I mean, and as you said, I mean, lyrics are very, very vivid. Uh, and uh, I, I can hear uh, the influence on bands like Led Zeppelin. And I believe that Sandy did sing with Led Zeppelin on uh, the Battle of Evermore yeah, uh, as yeah. well. So, you know, a bit of a, a bit of cross-pollination. Um, I, I hear a lot of um, female singers, um, you know, quote Sandy as, as a pioneer, um, uh, uh, really, in the music business. Uh, you know, she put up with a lot, but she really uh, plowed, plowed a, a fresh furrow there, I think. Um, uh, lots of people, quite a, Kate Bush, quite sort of an influence. Um, uh, um, a, a lot, a lot of singers, uh, quite sure as an influence. Um, and rightly so. And I think she should be better known. I think she'd be up there with, with the Carol Kings and, and the Joni Mitchells uh, in people's minds uh, as one of the great singer-songwriters. Well, I mean, sometimes it's not that easy for people to necessarily appreciate influence. Um, I think it was... Brian Eno said that only 20,000 uh, uh, people bought the Velvet Underground's first album, uh, but every one of them went out and formed a band. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, a terrifying thought. <laughs> well, some of them didn't work out. Uh, but, 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 uh, but just the idea that sometimes influences um, may not be as, uh, as explicit. Uh, as I said, sometimes when I listen to Fairport, uh, I can hear you. Uh, in in bands, um, the Pink Floyd album Metal, uh, especially the song Fearless. I mean, I can hear the chord progressions. I can hear the uh, uh, sort of the uh, the detail to lyrics uh, mm -hmm. in uh, in something like that. Um, 1969 was uh, was a was a tough year for uh, for you and mm -hmm. for for Fairport. You suffered uh, two tragedies. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, we lost our drummer. Um uh, in a car crash, and, and, and that was um, a, a huge uh, watershed for the band. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to carry on, um, and we thought very long and hard about what we were going to do as a band, uh, and we decided that we, we'd been talking a bit about doing, doing a project album of British traditional music performed with electric instruments. Um, uh, and we, um, we, we said, well, this is the time to do it. Let, let's, let's just forget the old repertoire. We, we don't want to play what we've been playing uh, with, with our drummer, Martin. Um, that'd be too painful to go back over that stuff. But so, so let's, let's, let's work on this new project. Um, we'll bring in Dave Swarbrick. Uh, we'll bring in uh, Dave Maddox on drums. Um, uh, and that became the, the Legion Leaf album. So, so, so it was... Uh, it would have happened sooner or later, but, but it did force our hand, I think, I think somewhat, to this, this big, big change of direction. Now, you're so closely associated with, with Fairport, uh, but by 1971, you leave Fairport. Uh, mm. I mean, a, a mere four years or maybe even less uh, from the time that you, you uh, formed the band and yeah. uh, you, you go solo. Yeah, I, th I think... Um I, I, th I think that motorway accident uh, affected all of us more than we admitted at the time. Um, you know, that didn't, didn't send you to therapy back then. It, it was still the sort of the, the World War II mentality of, you know, you're okay, you know, you're, you're going to be all right, just get on with it, you know, stiff upper lip and all that stuff. So um, I think we struggled. I mean, I mean, Ashley had a kind of nervous breakdown. Um, I, th I, th I think Sandy w was really... Um, Upset by, by the whole thing, and I, I, I think I, I just, 
I needed some alone time, I think, actually, was what it was down to. Um, a, a musical alone time. I, I've been in band since I was, you know, 12. Uh, and I, I think I wanted to see what would happen if I wasn't in a band, if, if I was just writing music uh, for my own pleasure and for my own performance. But, I mean, walking away from uh, a band that had, uh, I mean, a fairly uh, uh, quick uh, progression, hmm. uh, uh, on an ascent, uh, that couldn't have been easy. It was, it was incredibly difficult, yeah. Um, um, I, you know, we, we, we've talked about all that stuff since, you know, we, 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 I talked with Ashley and Simon uh, um, uh, about, you know, the, the accident and the effect it had on us, and, and I think we all said, well, if we just thought about it, we wouldn't, no one would have left the band. You know, Sandy would have stayed, I would have stayed, Ashley would have stayed. Uh, but we, we 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 weren't thinking right. We we weren't thinking straight. We we, we, we you know it's um, you know PTSD or whatever. Yeah. Well, one of the things uh, that you've mentioned is that uh, uh, perhaps shortly after this time, uh, as you're searching for something, uh, perhaps philosophically uh, or spiritually, uh, mm. you actually uh, land on something. Well, I did. Yeah. Um, there was a wonderful bookshop in London called Watkins. Um, it's up a little alley, Cecil Court Alley. Just full of these these sort of quirky old shops selling sheet music and books and stuff. It's a bit Harry Potter, in fact. Um, and, uh, and Watkins uh, is an esoteric bookshop. It's still there, and you know they, they do you know astrology and, and God knows what, and you can get your tarot cards there and all this stuff. So, so I started visiting there when I was about fifteen um, out of curiosity, and, and I, you know I picked up a book called um, uh, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Um, and uh, it, it contained uh, these little, uh, they're called koans, those little short things, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, the sound of one hand clapping kind of stuff, you know. And, and, and I started re reading this and I thought, well, that's really interesting. Um, I love this stuff. Uh, and, and, but the only way you, you can decode these things is to become a different person. You, you're never going to get it intellectually. So, 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 so something in you has to change. Um, so I, I started reading everything in Watkins Bookshop. I, I was their best customer for about f five years. Um, and you know, I went from A for Astrology to Z for Zen, and it all stops in between. And- um, I, I'm sorry, but if you're just simply reading the books there, then you're not really a customer. <laughs> <laughs> I did buy them. Okay, yeah, okay. okay, just checking. Did, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it wasn't sitting on the floor. And going okay. Yes, yeah, so, so you know, and I, I kind of paused at people like you know, Gurdjieff and Aspensky. I thought that's interesting, um, you know, and, and then I, I, I read like Pierre Vallée, Khan, um, uh, Richard Field, the people who, who were kind of, uh, I think it was called Sufism, you know, and I thought well, that's interesting, um, and, and, and I'd, I'd read it and enjoy it and then think, well, these seem to be the people who actually um, have the knowledge, you know, today, you know, not not. Thousand years ago, but right now the, these people seem to still have a tradition um, that, that contains knowledge. But but it was all in all in my head. The, the whole thing was in my head. Um, uh, I, I, I could, sh can I should I read such like please, something? Please, okay, please, yeah. yes. I, I, I'll just read um, uh, how, how um, the world came to me rather than me having to look for it. Um, I had paused in my trek through the shelves of Watkins at the letter S. This is from my book, by the way. In case you were wondering. This isn't my book, it, book, it comes hardbound. <clears throat> Yours will come like this. <laughs> <laughs> so the shelves of Watkins at the letter S. 
The Sufis were much quoted elsewhere. Sufi is, Sufism as an influence on the cabal, as being that which Rumi taught, as being the thing that certain Western groups in the US and Britain practiced with varying degrees of authenticity. I had over the years read books by Pierre Velayat Khan and the Englishman Richard Field, who I was intrigued to find out was a former member of the Springfield's vocal group, <laughs> alongside Dusty. I was also reading stories about Nazaruddin, a kind of Middle Eastern folk hero. Much of the content of these books struck me as Zen-like, cryptic as poetry is cryptic, hinting at something greater where words fail. I learned that the real Sufis were spread throughout the Islamic world and fell into various sects. I wanted to find out more about them, but it remained a thought only. At the same time, I was developing a love for things Middle Eastern, as I romanticized the world described by Gurdjieff and Ospensky, Richard Burton and T.E. Lawrence. As can happen in life, if one is fortunate, what I was looking for, but was too distracted to seek out, came to me. In Time Out magazine, there was an ad for a Sufi meeting in a church hall in Belsize Park in London. I was not working that night. I went along to watch. It was 300 yards from my flat. The 30-odd participants, men and women, were singing what was clearly a work of devotion, in unison, without accompaniment. A couple of followers were passing around cups of mint tea. It was intense but loose and in no way precious. As I sat on the outer fringes, I began to recognize faces. There was Ian Whiteman, Roger Powell and, and Mike Evans, all from the band Mighty Baby, who I had played many sessions with. There was Peter Sanders, who had taken many live photographs of Fairport. They smiled in recognition. As the intensity built, the whole assembly got to their feet and performed a kind of dance in a circle in which the intense, rhythmic breathing seemed to be important. Afterwards, we sat and chatted and drank more tea and caught up. I told them about all that I'd led me to that meeting, reading Richard Field, Pierre Villayat Khan, Tales of Nazaruddin, but they looked blankly at me as if unfamiliar with anything I was referring to. They invited me for lunch the next day at their Zawiya, literally a corner, a Sufi center. The food was delicious, and the room we ate in seemed to have some magnetic force like standing next to a meteorite. I visited often and felt at home there. I attended more nights of, of dhikr, invoca invocation. It was explained to me, and I really had not figured it out, that Sufism was the inner core of Islam. I started practicing the prayer collectively or on a borrowed prayer mat at home, and with the first prostration realized that this was something I had wanted to do my whole life, surrender, submit, hand over to the universe my ego, my conflicts, my troubles. Someone said that water takes on the color of the glass into which it is poured, a Christian glass, a Buddhist glass, a Muslim glass. The same water, just the outside trappings and methods are different. This all seemed to me like coming home after a long journey. There was no conversion as you would change your pounds into euros, just affirmation that this was who I had always been. And this was a relationship with the universe I had always had. Mm. Um, this was a time, I think, particularly here in Britain in the, in the mid-70s, where um, other musicians were also uh, on, on a journey, uh, yes. seeking something spiritually. I mean, Cat Stevens, with his uh, just immense success, Tea for the Tillerman in 1972, uh, of course, his journey toward Islam, uh, Pete Townsend uh, very famously uh, becomes a disciple of uh, Meher Baba, 
uh, George Harrison mm. uh, with, uh, uh, with Hinduism. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems as though people were, uh, were going to uh, something outside what was the structure of religion and philosophy in, in, in Great Britain. Yeah, I, I think at that time, um, people were not finding the answers they wanted in, in, in Christianity, or at least the Christianity they were brought up with. Um, I, I was raised Presbyterian, and um, it, it wasn't answering the, the, the questions um, that, that, that I had. I, I, perhaps uh, in, in another way, um, Christianity would have worked for me, but, but I, I couldn't really see it. Um, and it's interesting that, that, that so many Westerners were, were looking at that time um, for something different. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people went to India, or Indian traditions, you know, Sachi Sai Baba. Uh, um, and you had that, that, that uh, Oriental influence on music. Uh, um, you know, Rabbi Shankar w w became well known in the West. Um, George Harrison was playing sitar on Beatles records. Um, it's a whole other word. I, you know, I, I, I took sitar lessons in 1967, as you had to, it was almost compulsory, um, <clears throat> with the head of uh, Oriental Studies at London University. Uh, and, and every weekend, uh, there'd be a house concert at his house. Uh, and um, all these uh, Indian musicians uh, would do a tour of, of the UK that you'd never hear about, you'd no, never know about it, because it was all house concerts all, all, the, all the way through. And um, the most extraordinary musicians um, could be seen on any week weekend at, at Nazir's house. Um, it's just absolutely fabulous and a real learning experience. Um, what wonderful stuff! And, and um, I, I can never quite pin down where that that um, looking eastward uh, or, or outside of, of Britain anyway, um, and outside of Christianity. I, I can't quite I never quite figure out where that started. Um, somewhere in the '60s, but I, I don't know where. How did that influence your music? Sorry? How did that influence your music with this move towards Sufism? Um, it's interesting. I, I mean, the, when I became interested in um, Sufism, um, the, 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 the branch of Sufism that, that, that I followed and that, that this London group followed um, came from North Africa. It came from uh, Meknes and Fez in, in, in Morocco. Uh, but, but it's kind of all, all over the... Um, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. Uh, was this uh, the Tajanis? Sorry? Or was it the Tajanis? Um, no, it was uh, uh, Dakawi. Okay. Yeah, uh, the Dakawi Habibia. Um, and um, w w when we listened to, to their music, it, it didn't sound oriental. It, it sounded kind of Western. Um, and used familiar scales for the most part. So, so it, it wasn't alien. It, it, was, it, it was Just the forms were different. Um, can't quite describe it, but but um, <coughs> that, that, that music, the, the music in, in North Africa uh, to this day, uh, uh, what they call traditional North African music, uh, comes from a time when uh, the Moors were in Spain, and um, th th there's a strong theory that, that, that actually um, Moorish music. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a music of nostalgia as well, uh, a music of loss, uh, music of chivalry, um, really influenced uh, the troubadours in, in uh, France and, and the trouvères and, uh, and the Meistersingers. So, so it, had a, it possibly had a big influence on, on European music. So perhaps um, 
that, that's one of the reasons it doesn't sound alien to us, that, that it was already, uh, had infiltrated in, into Europe uh, quite early on, uh, probably by about 11th, 11th, 12th century. Um, this is a theory, but, but, but uh, I, I think it's, it's a fairly good theory. Well, I mean, Moorish, Moorish music uh, influences uh, uh, Segovia. And, oh, so, and yeah. so you're going to hear in the classical music of Segovia that then uh, is brought forward. But you have been adventurous in also uh, uh, paying homage, if you will, to uh, uh, British medieval music, the music of the troubadours here, yeah. uh, the chord progressions and, uh, and, and some of the technical work that you do. Mm. Uh, so for you, it's not just about space. It's also uh, looking at music uh, chronologically and, uh, and bringing back yeah, um, someone remarked um, that, that um, all British art, music, painting, um, etc., is, is about the landscape. It's about it's about what England looks like. It's about the hills and, and the hedges and the trees and the, um, and if you think about it, you, you know, you, uh, Vaughan Williams went back to. Um, uh, um, so certainly the 16th century. Um, well, we might not know that about Greensleeves if it wasn't for Vaughan Williams actually doing an arrangement of it. Um, and he went back you know, for um, variations on the theme by Thomas Tallis. Thomas Tallis, uh, I think also 16th century. Um, uh, uh, Vaughan Williams went back to go forwards. Um, his variations, it's a modern piece of music, but it's not like Schoenberg, it's not like Ravel, it's some, something quite English and, uh, and unique and, and, and it is uh, about the, it, that, that British uh, sentimentality for, for for Britain you know what, what Britain looks like what Britain feels like that and this tradition of Britain um, what, what, what we think Britishness is um, so, so Sarah Vaughan Williams uh, it's there in in um, some of the other British composers it's, it's there in a lot in Benjamin Britain um, Yes. Yeah, I got that um, sense also from people like Richie Blackmore, uh, most famously of uh, Deep Purple, uh, going off and now seemingly uh, acting as though he's touring Renaissance festivals with uh, with this very medieval uh, tune, but uh, using a Stratocaster, not a lute, yeah. uh, in in order to do that, and uh, and somehow it 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 works. Um, I was wondering um, if uh, you uh, might be enticed to uh, to play something. Well, I could play something. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, you know, un unlike unlike me, that I'll guitar that, that guitar shouldn't be a prop. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, what should I play? Well, um, I, I if can... you if you don't mind. Okay. Let me see. I could play something. Well, um, I could play something historical or, or to yeah. Um, well, I could I could play something about that. I could play a Fairport song. That might be fun. Um, this is um, it's a song I wrote when I was 18 years old, uh, and it I think I think it points forward. I think it points to that kind of spirit spiritual interest um, that I had at that age, uh, that I hadn't quite resolved, hadn't quite figured out where it was going. But uh, it, it is a it's a song of of, of projection uh, into the future um. we used to say there come the day we'll all be making songs 
finding better words These ideas never lasted long The way is up Along the run The air is growing thin Too many friends have tried Swept up this mountain with a wind Meet on the ledge We're gonna meet on the ledge When my time is up I'm gonna see all of my friends Meet on the ledge Gonna meet on the ledge If you really mean it All comes around again Now I see I'm all alone That's the only way to be You'll have your chance again Then you can do the work for me Meet on the ledge We're gonna meet on the ledge When my time is up I'm gonna see all of my friends Oh, meet on the ledge Gonna meet on the ledge If you really mean it It all comes around again I'm struck by the fact that, first of all, you wrote that at 18. Um, the other fact is that it was 1967, and you have this way of making uh, some more traditional chord progressions sound modern. And in some ways, this is the kind of music that I seem to remember more familiarly with maybe five, six years later. It sounds like almost like a precursor to people like Cat Stevens and, mm. and, and uh, even some of the work that, uh, that Zeppelin was, uh, was doing. Um, very much a bridge between those, those two eras and worlds. Uh, I'm far too modest to, to comment. Uh, really. That's why I'm doing it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's my job, thanks. Well, yeah, you know, and, and, you know the, the great trick in popular music, which I, don't, I rarely succeed with, is to make something... Um, familiar, um, just slightly different. You just juxtapose an element or two and it comes out as a new thing. You know, a lot like ABBA were geniuses doing that, that kind of thing. You know, we take something that, that's predictable and you, you, you know, the chords have been used a million times, but you just turn it around a tiny, tiny bit. Anyway. Well, I mean, um, the fact that you were adventurous enough to even find um, the beauty in a song like Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again, this is true. It's, it's, it's on YouTube. You it's on YouTube. It oh, okay, it must be yeah. true. It's on YouTube. Yeah, okay. 
Does that mean every, everything that, that all those Donald Trump videos are, are true as well? You know, if, if Trump were to try to sing that song, um, we could talk about that. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but, well, but if, if, if Donald Trump sang a Britney Spears song, I'd have a lot, a lot of more respect for him, actually. Uh, might, might actually have some new votes. Um, but, but the fact that you you are obviously then still a, um, an aficionado, maybe aficionado would be a bit of a strong word, but you are an active listener to music that is still being produced now. I mean, albeit this was probably from the mid-90s uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Miss Spears. Um, what do you see in the music today? Well, the thing is, you, you never stop learning. Uh, you know, if you think you know it all, you might as well just quit right, right there and then. Mm. Um, you, you really have to be, be a student for life, for absolutely forever. Um, and there's always stuff to learn. There's always things you don't know, always things you don't know, about harmony and about life. Um, Yaya Ma said, um, first become a, a good human being, and then maybe you can become a good musician. So uh, you, if, if, if you, you run out of chords, you can always start on yourself. <laughs> Was there, and this might be a little bit controversial, but you know, um, was there anyone that you felt wasn't doing it right musically, that uh, um, metaphorically or literally turning the, the, the radio dial on? Um, I, I have a list here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm really, uh, I, I'm not a good person to ask that question because I, I hate everything. <laughs> I really do. Um, I, I hate 95% of, of, of music. Um, and it annoys me that, that music is so uh, ubiquitous. Uh, uh, you, know, you can't get rid of it sometimes. Um, uh, my idea of a, a good time is, is to put on, you know, like one Maria Callas track and just listen to it really loud. And, and then I'm done for the day. That, that's me. That's fine. That's wonderful. I, I think most, in my perception, most people get it wrong. Um, but, but that's good, I think, for me. I, I, I'm super critical, honestly. I, um, but I think that, that drives me forward. And, and makes me work harder and, uh, and say to myself, okay, well, if that's no good, what are you going to do? Uh, and and uh, this is me arguing with myself. Um, um, but, uh, oh golly, you know, I help. <laughs> uh, even people that, that I admire and love, I mean, I, I might say, well, okay, I don't like that song. I like that song, but not that one, not that one. Not that. Um, so I'm not a good person to ask, but thank you for asking. Yeah. Most welcome. Is there a song that that's out there that you listen to and you say, God, I wish I would have written that one. Um, well, occasionally you, you get like a, you know, it's a great, like a, a Nick Kershaw song or something and you think, well, that's, that's really clever. It's a really great song. It's a great arrangement to da da dee da dee da Wouldn't it be good if da 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 Come on, everyone. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I tend to gravitate to, to kind of, um, you know, school of melodic, if you like. Um, you know, a, a Beatles, uh, Crowded House, Squeeze, um, etc. You know. Um, Bit of blur, a bit of pulp, you know. Don't mind a bit of that. Um, Oasis, maybe. You know, um, but but the more melodic stuff, um, rather, rather than just kind of dance music, which kind of you know um, dulls my brain a bit. You know, at, at some point, uh, um, 
dance music just became all, all about the, the bass drum. And it's, uh, if you compare, you know, the, uh, the Bee Gees to um, something from New Orleans, uh, the, to the Neville Brothers, you know, um, there's no contest, you know, which, which is actually the best to dance to, but people never get exposed to. Uh, people get exposed to, to, to disco and, and it's just relentless. And the only way to really um, enjoy disco is to be out of your skull. <laughs> you know, um, I think ecstasy is probably the, the way to go. Oh, I thought you said the band XTC, but all right. Um, well, Great band. I, okay. I love XTC as well. I'll, I'll put those on the good list. I, I, I am, I'm convinced that Andy Partridge and, uh, and Colin yeah. Moulding borrow heavily from you, uh, given some oh, of did the... He? Given, given some of the... I'll go around his house, I know where he lives. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, they're, I think they're in Swindon. Um, well, another Nick, uh, you mentioned Kershaw, but uh, Nick Drake. I mean, certainly somebody with whom I think there's more than just some parallels in, in the musical style, but perhaps a kindred spirit. Um, yeah, I think maybe a kindred spirit, yeah. Um, well, Nick always seemed, um, even for 1967, 68, um, very introverted. Uh, at a time when, I think because of drugs, people didn't necessarily say hello or talk to you. Uh, there's just this sort of under understanding, you sort, sort of nod uh, as if, it, you know, th there's some shared experience you didn't even have to talk about, you know, like, the, like life. You know, oh, yeah, you, 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 you've got a life and I've got a life. Okay, that's fine. We don't need to talk about it. We just, have, we just nod. So with Nick, it was hard to get even a nod out of him. Um, and, uh, you know, we shared uh, management. So, so I, I see him all the time, you know, at the management offices or something. Uh, we had the same record company. Uh, you know, I played in his records sometimes. Um, uh, he, was, he was a good friend of John Martin's, who, who, who was my, my neighbor for a while. Um, so I might see him at John's house. Uh, he's a good friend of, of John Wood's, uh, our, our engineer. I might see him at John Wood's house. But Nick, Nick was kind of a remote figure and, uh, you know, quite a difficult person. Uh, and he became remoter. And, and by the time of his third album, I thought, this is too uncomfortable to listen to. I, I, it's too painful to listen to. Uh, and I fear for his sanity and his life. Um, but, um, boy, did he make some great records. Um, fantastic records. Uh, and again, like Sandy, I mean, so many people quote Nick Drake as an influence. I mean, all over the place, you know, here in it and in America. Um, yeah, extraordinary influence. Um, and that, 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 there was a great review I, I, I just read from the Melody Maker, you know, when his first album came out, and it described it as kind of a, you know, um, sort of a f a folk mix meets cocktail jazz. And I thought, oh boy, I, I, I bet you're sorry you said that one. <laughs> you know, because, um, yeah, again, someone whose legacy has just continued to grow and grow and grow. And, and you have these revivals. Um, I mean, in the US, he, uh, Pink Moon was used in a Volkswagen commercial. Yeah. And uh, we can have a completely different conversation about commodification of, of, of classic uh, songs like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it opened his music to an entirely new audience and, and, and an appreciative one. Yeah. Um, uh, before we go to Q&A, um, uh, I was wondering if perhaps you wouldn't mind uh, Oh, yeah. giving us another. But I do have one, one final question on my part. Uh, your, your book um, uh, says, Fairport, Folk Rock, and, and Finding My Voice. Um, have you found it? Uh, I should not be the judge of that. Okay. Or I'll, I'll, get, I'll get hate mail. 
I don't know. I, I think I, I, I think I'm not a bad singer these days. Actually, I think I'm quite, quite, you know, I, um, I'm very happy singing my, my own music anyway. Um, if I was singing um, excerpts from The Sound of Music, um, I, I might be compared to other people, uh, which maybe unfavorably. But um, I can do a bit of uh, light opera if you like. A bit of Gilbert and Sullivan. Okay, no, okay, no. I'll play something. Um, this is another story in the book where uh, you know, I describe being 15 years old and going to the Marquee Club and seeing all these great bands, seeing the Who on a Tuesday, uh, the Move on a Monday, uh, Spencer Davis on a Wednesday, and the Yardbirds on a Friday. Um, and I, I might have seen Eric Clapton's last show with the Yardbirds uh, before Jeff Beck came along. And, and of course, well, we lost Jeff Beck just um, a month ago, maybe two months ago. Uh, so um, uh, I, I, I saw him a bunch of times, and, and, and he was a, a, an influence on me, on, on my playing. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll dedicate this to the memory of, uh, of Jeff. And this is about the walk home. Um, the, the marquee, you, you could always do, I could always, always watch the first set and get the last bus or the last train home. If I uh, stayed for both sets, it was very tempting to stay for both sets, I, um, I knew I'd have to walk home. Uh, at, that, at that point, it was 10 miles. Which you did once. Uh, which, which I did a, a lot of. Um, on a school night, it was, it was a problem. <laughs> that promising career in accountancy was uh, looking increasingly shaky. It's called Walking the Long Miles Home. Oh, the last bus is gone. Oh, maybe I'm wrong, but dust doesn't exist. And the words that flew between me and you, I must be crossed off your list. So I'm walking along my home. I don't mind losing you. In fact, I feel better each step of the way. In the dark, I rehearse all the right things to say. I'll be home, I'll be sober by brick of day. Walking along my home. Not a soul is around. As I put more ground between me and you And the whole town's asleep Or maybe they're deep in the old voulez-vous So I'm walking along my town I don't mind losing you I've got the moon there for company each step of the way. Got the rhythm in my shoes, keep the blues away. When you ride Shanks' pony, you don't have to pay. 
walking along Mars home. Walk the Mars. Staying so long, and why you accuse me? The hours confuse me, and my friends had all gone. So I'm walking along my town. I don't mind losing you, and there's nobody out. Put a cop on the bait He's snoring so loud That he don't hear my fate I just laugh to myself I move off down the street Walking along my town Walking along my town Walking along my town Thank you. Okay, um, we have a roving mic, so if anyone has any questions, and may I please request, if we could have the house lights up, that way, thank you so much. That way I can actually see who's got their hands up. And um, we got a question up here. Um, and then right after that, we got a question uh, right behind him, so to speak, yes. Hello, um, thanks very much. I'd be interested, in persuasion, and you said about singing your own words. Yeah. I know Tim Finn added it later after you did yeah. the instrumental. Firstly, how do you feel about singing compared to Tim's version? And secondly, how did it come about? Come about um, well, I, I, I wrote uh, the tune for an Australian feature film, a uh, romantic comedy. Why me, I said, for a romantic comedy. Um, <laughs> but I got the job anyway, and um, it was one of the, the main themes for the film. And um, uh, t t t Tim said, oh, I really like that tune. Could I put some words to it? Uh, uh, and originally, we kind of worked together on, on the lyric. And, and, and then uh, he said, oh, I'm going to go, go away and think about it and, and see what you think, uh, uh, what I come up with. And I thought what he came up with it was very good. Um, and, and I think, uh, uncredited, uh, Neil Finn wrote the words for the, for the bridge. Um, so it's a family affair, as it were. But that, that, that's basically the story. And I, I'm very happy singing those words. I, I think they fit really well. Um, and is, is it about Greta Skarki, we ask ourselves, yeah. uh, which is possibly, possibly was about Greta Skarki. Thank you. All right, great. Uh, the gentleman right there in the Brudnell Social Club. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I saw you last Saturday at Glastonbury. Fantastic performance in the acoustic tent. Oh, good. Tent. Yeah. I just wondered if you've had any real good memories of Glastonbury, either by yourself or with uh, Fairport. Um, I've always found it a bit overwhelming, even the very early ones. Uh, I think the first one I did was about 1974, uh, uh, where it was just a sea of mud. Uh, I, I remember driving my, my, my Volvo estate, like basically through the, through the, through the crowd of people, uh, and the crowd of people were, were standing in about 
you know, a, a sort of a, you know, a, a, a World War One trenches worth of, of, of mud. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty about a foot deep, and I just about got my car through it. You know, driving it sort of two miles and I'm nudging people out of the way. It's all very embarrassing, really. But I had to get out of there. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I mean, I've always been on, on one of the smaller stages, uh, which I'm happy with. Um, uh, but I just find Glastonbury overwhelming. It's too much, um, too many people. And I know it's really an event. And um, if you talk to people there, they say, well, it's about the event, not necessarily about the music, which I find extraordinary in some ways. But, but it's become such a thing. And there's so much to do there. There's so many interesting places to go. And people love to see their friends. They love to meet new people. Um, so if you are, you know, half a mile from Elton, John, um, that, that's still okay. You know, it's still all right. You've still got the experience, even if you can't actually, you know, hear half the notes. Um, so I, I, I was happy to be in the acoustic tent, uh, which is a bit I of its own world. That's why you do have to go find yeah. the smaller stages. Yeah, such as um, the yeah. Well, where, where you've got, you know, a maximum about three thousand people. Uh, I think I played to about two thousand. That was fine. Um, it's like, like a big folk club, really, isn't it? <laughs> Very big folk club. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I, I see you've got a nice tan, and I hope you enjoyed yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a question up here in the front. You talk about 1967, and there was a, a group very similar to Fairport, Brian Auger and the Trinity with Julie Driscoll. Okay. And I just wondered if that kind of sound had had any influence. The Julie, because Julie Driscoll was using a lot of uh, Bob Dylan's work. Yeah, and, and it was very much like Peppa, but I, and I think the writing was similar. Yeah, um, I, th I thought she was a great singer, J J Julie Driscoll. I, I, she, she had a really good style. Um, uh, but th they were a lot jazzier th than we were um, as a band. I, I mean, the, the similarity really was we, we both had, had girl singers at the time. Um, but, but I, I would have seen them as something quite different. Um, I must tell you, uh, we were playing at the Cannes Music Festival in the south of France uh, with Brian Auger, and, and, uh, and I think that they, they were on first, and then we were just waiting to go on after them. And they were on the light-up revolving stage. Um, so you could have a band in front and then another band at the back, but we were on this third stage over here. And um, so uh, Brian Auger and the, and the band you know, start up, you know, the organ, you know, Big big jazz sort of number before Julie Driscoll comes on, so so they, they, they play one song, you know, applause, 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 and then um, and they say, now please welcome to the stage Julie Driscoll. Uh, Julie Driscoll walks out at the exact moment that some wag decides to turn on the revolving stage. <coughs> so, so, so Julie goes arse over tit. She goes wang, uh, and and the band start disappearing around the corner. <laughs> Uh, and, and you know the 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 cables to the organ get, get pulled out, and they're sort of looking frantically as, as they disappear out the back. Um, that's my abiding memory of <laughs> Brian Auger. Um, yeah, 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 I mean, they, they were a great band. I, I, I really think they were fantastic. Um, yeah, um, they, they were from here, or you think they were, no? Yes, no, Mad. Were they from around here, or no? No. North somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's a big place. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, th well, thank you for the question. All right, thank you. Sir? I saw you last year in uh, Hollywood Forever. A uh, very strange venue, but about this size in, uh, in North LA. Right. And I, I, I hadn't realized at the time that you'd actually moved out and become a Californian. 
Can you say I, I, a little bit about becoming a Californian? Well, I became a Californian a long time ago. I, I now I'm not a Californian anymore. Um, I, I probably moved there, you know, it, it's um, cherchez les femmes, um, <laughs> you know. Um, so um, I, I got married to a Californian in 1984, five, five, uh, and, and, and partly moved there. But, but I've, I've always spent a lot of time in the UK as well. I, I never really left. Um, and uh, then um, when, I, when I got divorced, um, for, uh, well, I split up with, with my wife seven years ago and I, I moved my American um, base, as it were, to, to, to New Jersey, to, to the East Coast. Because it's, it's an easier hop to, to London um, and it's a more convenient place to tour. Um, so I, I stopped being a Californian. But I, I like California. And that, that's a strange venue, isn't it? Uh, it, it, it it's a venue, it, it's, it's an old Masonic lodge um, in the middle of, of a graveyard. And in the graveyard, yeah, you, you know, you've got all these Hollywood stars, you know, really famous people, and, and there's tours going around all the time. But um, at the time, that, that was a sort of the hip venue, and something uh, you have to think about in L.A. is um, where is hip? You really do. Every single time you've got to think, okay, what's the hip venue? What's the hip restaurant? Or what's this? Um, Angelinos will only go to a hip event, and they all expect to be on the guest list. Every single one of them. So uh, these are two battles that we have every single time that we play in LA. But good question. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Yes, sir. Oh, there you are. Okay. A bit louder, please. Isn't it? Right into the mic, please. Uh, the, the mic's not on or something. Is it? Did, did you switch it off? Hello? Yep. There you are. <laughs> Don't press the button. Um, I, I have this memory, my mate Ed's no longer with us, I want to confirm that 1967 you came to Bradford before Christmas with Fairport Convention. Yes. Yeah. Quite and possibly. I have this memory, <laughs> oh, only possibly, because I remember you, uh, somebody from the group coming on and saying, look, we're not meant to be here tonight, but as we're here, we're going to play. <laughs> and, and Ed and I, not surprisingly, thought you were absolutely fantastic. Oh, good. Um, and, and the first thing we did when we came back for the next term was go to the union shop and buy tickets for Fairport Convention. Wonderful. And you came back again. Do you have any memories of that? <laughs> um, no, not really. Uh, I remember uh, that we played Bradford fairly frequently. Um, uh, as Fairport, um, we, we, we play Bradford, we, we, we play Leeds a lot as well. Um, uh, we, we, I mean, we played a lot of universities in those days. Uh, um, and it occurs to me now that, that it was all subsidised by, by Harold Wilson's government, uh, um, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, and uh, the, the, the other place that, that I played with, 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 with Linda, with my wife Linda, as, as an acoustic duo, was uh, Bradford Folk Clubs. Um, and there was a wonderful singer called uh, Dave Brady. Uh, Swan Arcade, Swan Arcade? Yeah. Uh, just uh, this great uh, three-piece um, uh, a cappella band that, that did, you know, sea shanties and, uh, and God knows what. But, but, but Dave was a, a just a force of nature. I think he moved to Cumbria uh, eventually, but um, he was absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, and w what a voice. I mean, uh, y he wouldn't need a microphone in the Albert Hall, basically. Um, the extraordinary uh, uh, singer. And he had one arm. He'd, uh, he'd been, he rode his motorcycle um, quite fast uh, and he realised it was about to hit a brick wall 
uh, so he, he stuck his arm out and, and grabbed the lamppost. Um, and uh, so he, yeah, he had one arm. But yeah, he could play the guitar with, with, with one arm and the concertina. Um, uh, it's, it's, how do you play guitar with one arm? Well, you, you basically strum with that finger. Um, but he was such a character, such a, such a nice man. I, I loved him. I haven't seen him for years and years and years. Hope he's still on the planet. Many years ago? Oh, well, my heart's broken. Uh, there you go. But anyway, um, they actually recorded one of my songs, a song called The Great Valerio, and it's probably my favorite cover of any song of mine that anyone's ever done. There you go. Talking about venues, what was it like playing at Ali Pali? Uh, play, um, yes, uh, that was only, was that yesterday? Day before yesterday? Day before yesterday, yeah. Okay, um, Ali Pali is Alexandra Palace in London, uh, which um, uh, was the home of the BBC um, from its beginnings in 1926 up until the 50s, uh, I think, or maybe even 60s. So um, if, if you were watching Muffin the Mule or um, <laughs> The Flowerpot Men, that was being broadcast from Ali Pali. Uh, and it's this weird place, it's this huge complex, a massive complex that looks right on a high, high spot right over London. And um, apart from the BBC, there was a massive exhibition hall. Um, there's a skating rink, still there. And there's a theatre, uh, which was closed for something like 60 years. Uh, and they, they, they reopened it a few years ago. And it's gorgeous, wonderful, wonderful theatre. Um, and uh, in 1967, we've been talking a lot about 1967, haven't we? Um, it was the uh, home of the 14-hour uh, Technicolor Dream, which is this big sort of psychedelic event, the first big psychedelic event in London, and um, uh, in, the, in, in the exhibition hall, maybe 10,000 people, um, uh, people smoking banana skins, um, you know, light shows, never seen those before, showing old 20s films, silent films, um, uh, uh, three bands on at once. If you stood in the middle, you could hear all three bands. Uh, if you really wanted to hear a band, you had to get very close to the stage. But, um, you know, it's Pink Floyd and Soft Machine and, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Sam Gopal, uh, Arthur Brown, all the usual faces. Um, but but it, was, it was a real sort of uh, turning point, I think, in, in, um, in certainly in London culture. That, that, that was a real eye-opener. Um, I, I was at school. I went with my school friends. 67, I must have just been at school. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, um, we're at the end of our discussion. If you have any other questions, uh, we will be having a book signing now just outside, uh, which I'm sure you'd be able to uh, go ahead uh, and, and address those things. Uh, the book, again, is B-Swing, Fairport, Folk Rock, Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975. Of course, Richard Thompson. Richard, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.